Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Greetings, everybody. My name is Becky Jaimes. I'm a product manager here at Salesforce, working with Salesforce Functions. And today I'm here with Nick from Dovetail. Hi, Nick. Hi, Becky. So tell me about Dovetail. What, what is Dovetail? Dovetail is a company that basically helps, helps founders build uh, large, ambitious technology companies. Um, basically, our two main target markets are well-funded startups and, and scale-ups that are starting to get some traction. And we will come in and help them. We'll bring in a team and help them design, build, help them with growth hacking and marketing and basically help them build their company and, and scale it into something much larger than where they currently are. Um, and I think something that makes us, uh, I guess, a little bit different to most uh, other players in the industry is that when we come in, we actually come in and we make often relatively large investments into the clients that we work with. So we become a, a really a, a long-term partner for these companies that we're helping grow. And then the, the, the shares, the equity that we get as part of that investment, we share with every single person on the Dovetail team. So every everyone working in Dovetail both have a salary, and but they also get, they basically earn a stake in a portfolio of, of, of fast-growing technology companies that we're working with. So it really creates a much closer alignment with everyone in our team and, and with, with our, our, our clients. So this is, and, and you said it's fast-growing startups. So if somebody has a great idea and already has a little bit of traction, they come and they pitch you. How do people find you or like, how do you find these companies? So we actually started originally in New Zealand. Then we expanded into Australia um, and, and set up uh, offices in Sydney and in Melbourne. So in the early days, we had some actually some quite good early success. We had some companies that we'd worked with that became quite successful. In the, in the initial stages, a lot of our work came in through word of mouth, came in through our personal networks, came in through uh, just kind of people that, that knew what we'd been doing in, in, in our industry. And uh, then as, as the companies expanded, we've, we've started sort of increasing our, our brand awareness uh, in this part of the world. And now we're starting to grow into the U.S., which is kind of the next, uh, I guess, bigger market for us to start tackling. Oh, so interesting. So it started with, um, if I'm following here, is like you started uh, helping a, a few companies, decided to build these as a, as a business. And then you started getting basically referrals. And these companies will come and pitch to you. And you're like, yeah, that company is interesting. We should invest in it. And you help them grow. And then it was like that, but you didn't really have like an accelerator or anything like that. No, not not initially. Companies basically would come to us and pitch their idea, and and we would look at it on its merits, much like a typical accelerator or VC would. We're quite picky with the clients we we take on board. Picking the right clients is really of huge importance to us, and also you know, our whole model is predicated on on long-term partnerships so we're we're really looking for clients uh, that that can become great long-term partners that we can work with for you know three four five years and really help them grow from a small company all the way through to international expansion and how did it start my co-founder and I um, we actually met in high school 
We were both trying to backtest various strategies in the stock market. This is after you already went to college and everything. No, this is high school. We were 16. <laughs> and we were we were both at home without anyone, like without telling anyone. We, we'd be like writing computer programs, trying to find r- random relationships in the stock market and the foreign exchange market. And we're trying to create strategies around this. And then uh, I found out that it, this, this guy, Ash, was doing exactly the same thing. And we're like, this is bizarre. All right, we need to be working together on this. Um, so we um, we started working together on these various trading systems. And um, ultimately, we went to university, uh, both of us together. You know, I studied computer science and economics. And then while we we're actually at university, we raised a bunch of venture capital and started a payments and, and ticketing company that actually grew quite large uh, in New Zealand. A couple of years later, we ended up selling that first company that we started. And then we were kind of playing around with, what, what do we do next? We want to do something interesting. Uh, well, what's the next idea? So we kind of we were playing around with a couple of different options. Uh, we were really kind of looking for a few different things. We were looking for something that, that we could really work on for the next 30 or 40 years. We wanted something that, was, that could be the long-term challenge, which was like, what can we do if we really put our minds to it for the next 30, 40 years on, on one idea. Uh, we wanted something we could never, ever get bored of, you know, something that would just continuously be interesting as the company grew. We wanted something that was more anti-fragile than your sort of typical startup. A lot of, you know, VC-backed startups, you, you essentially have all your eggs in one basket, and that's, there's just no, there's often no way around that. We were kind of looking for a model where we could have more diversification and, and and it'd be, I guess, more anti-fragile as the company grew. So that's kind of when we came up with this dovetail model, which is where we would work with multiple companies, helping grow those companies into much larger companies and take an ownership stake in, in many of them. And it just kind of perfectly matched our, our sort of two main interests, which were you know entrepreneurship and investing. And it felt like something that just, I mean, could never get boring because there's new interesting projects coming in. Uh, so, so things are always changing. So that's kind of how it started. And then it's kind of grown from there. It's like, I feel like only someone that has already launched something that is successful realizes that the next thing they need to work on is something that they will probably work for the next 40 years. You know, like a lot of people think of like a good idea and they start a business and then they realize that they've been at it for 10 years and they're like, oh my gosh, if you would have told me that I was going to work on this product for 10 years, I'm not sure I would have started. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It just takes longer. It's harder work. It's more stressful. It's, it's everything. Um, but also the thing I really like about about just starting from day one with a long-term goal is it actually changes it changes the way you look at the firm. Uh, it allows you to to make longer-term investments. It allows you to sometimes even grow slightly slower if you just want to set the company up like perfectly from from the start. It it also allows you to. I mean, there are certain people that we wanted to join the company, and when the company was a bit too small, they didn't really want to join. So we just kept pursuing. Yeah, and like for three years. And, and and then manage to get them on board. But, you know, if you have a four-year exit plan, or, then you're not going to really bother with any of that. So it just allows you to kind of think really far ahead, I think. And those, those companies that you're helping, uh, you mentioned that you want to help them grow in the long term. 
when they say that, are they talking like in the long term? They're talking about like over a four year period as well, or like what is what is their plan generally? I, I mean, our goal is to work with them for the long term and to work with them for as long as we're still adding adding value. You know, our biggest clients we're still working with now, and there's no plans ended as long as we keep impressing them that we're worth working with. Initially, we'll come into a company, and it depends a little bit what size the company is at. But sometimes, for say smaller companies that are that are well funded, have raised decent amounts of money, and that are maybe non-technical, what they really want in the beginning is someone to help them build and manage, uh, you know, a world-class product and development team, while they kind of focus on on sales and marketing and building their team and and really growing the business. You know, there's so much more to starting a a company than just the technology and and I, and I think oftentimes the the founders that are freed up to spend a little bit more time on on the other parts of growing the business they they, they can deliver phenomenal results. So, so we'll come in and initially take that work with them on building a world class team that can handle the product, and then as the company grows, you know, we will actually help them start hiring in their internal capabilities, start hiring mm-hmm. in their own team, and then work with them in a hybrid model. And then again, as the company continues to grow, we just have to continue to prove every single month that that we're adding value. And you know, we don't lock our clients into anything, which is can be stressful because we have yeah. to continuously uh, prove our worth. But but that's kind of the model, and I think it's it, it works for the for the long term. I imagine this would be different for every single of your customers. But how do you usually prove that you're adding value? In the early days, when a customer comes in and, and, and starts working with us, we try to always sequence our engagements so that we can, especially for the client, so they can start working with us in quite a small way with relatively little risk. And, and so then we have you know two months where we can really try to prove ourselves. Once we get that trust on the, on the basis of the client, then we will basically we'll build out a sequence of milestones and start hitting those together. And at a certain point, you know, the client can just see that when when we're knocking out work that that lots of people are are downloading, that they're rating highly, that we're helping them get results, and and that there's no pain in the process for them. And then as the company grows, I guess they're always just comparing. They're just looking at at what kind of changes. How can we help their internal existing team deliver better? You know, we don't want to be just a kind of dumb development shop that gets you know drawings from the clients like do these we're trying to deliver a lot of value over and above that where we become a part of the the client's company you know we're all sitting in slack together um we're just working in one big team so it's not super clear who's in one company or the other we treat each other like we were in the same company from from like all the different companies that you've helped like which ones are like your favorite biggest uh, i don't know how you say like winners like which ones would be the examples that you were to pick to like inspire other entrepreneurs to be like oh my gosh i should definitely do drop what <laughs> like one day somebody told me in entrepreneurship at some point you should the, the the way to do it is like you start something while you have a job and then one day you have to pick between the thing and the job and it's like what what would be like those stories that would make somebody be like okay i am working on the thing and i'm giving up the job so yeah so i think what our most successful project has been a company called afterpay so afterpay is a is a fintech company that came out of australia 
We started working with them, uh, I think, in January 2017. Basically, they allow you to, basically, like, say, go online and buy a dress or some shoes or, you know, even an airfare and then um, pay it off uh, interest-free over multiple payments. So rather than putting it on your credit card and having to pay money to the bank, you can just buy it with Afterpay. You still get the goods straight away, um, but it's interest-free. So it's kind of like modern lay-by, right? Yeah. How do they make money? They actually they charge the, the, the retailer, the merchant, a, a small fee. And the merchants, yeah. they do this because they've seen their sales just increase by enormous amounts. So when, when we started working wow. with them in, in Australia, they were quite a small company. They were based in Sydney. And you could also only use Afterpay at that stage to buy things online. Uh, so you could use it for, for e-commerce. Our first project with them, we initially started, we helped them basically build out a mobile strategy that allowed people to go into a store and they could buy something and they could use their cell phone as a payment device to then buy it on Afterpay. So suddenly it opened up, you know, not just e-commerce, but the whole world of retail to Afterpay. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a super fun start <sighs> to working with them. And, you know, within... 48 hours of launching that app, it went to the number one in the app store. And Afterpay just really started absolutely taking off in, in Australia. It just grew everywhere. If you went into a, a shopping mall, it, there was an Afterpay poster in like every second window. You know, you know it started getting a lot of traction. And um, then their, their web platform was basically starting to, it was getting a lot more traffic than, than it had originally been designed for. So then we came in and we basically helped them build out their web platform in a way that was that could handle a lot more traffic uh, as the company continued to grow. And and the other thing we wanted to try help help them do was was really turn Afterpay into a, a shopping destination in itself rather than just a payment gateway. And today in Australia, Afterpay is actually the second largest referrer of traffic in the whole country, uh, second only to Google. Oh wow! So it's just—it's become more than a uh, more than a payment mechanism. It's become, you know, it drives a lot of traffic to to retailers, and and is really helping them yeah. increase their sales. And and so so then we helped them grow into New Zealand, uh, into the UK, and into the US. And you know they haven't been in the US for that long, um, but already already over nine million customers in the US have joined. Uh, it's got over five million monthly active users. Uh, I think they have about 50,000 merchants uh, that have signed up. So it's looking pretty promising. It's taking off like wildfire in the U.S. as well. They're now a, I think they're an $18 billion company. And we've been with them, you know, from while they were still a, a relatively small Australian company. So it's it's been a, an awesome journey. And it's exactly the, the type of client that we're looking for on, on a daily basis, right? Uh, so now our goal is just to kind of try to replicate this as many times as we can. And and how do you, so you're talking about like, this is a type of company. How do you pick the right companies? How do you, uh, because I mean, I can't imagine how many, how many pitches you get in a week? Uh, yeah, we, we get quite a, quite a few. I mean, we have an, we have an investing framework where we sort of look for a range of different factors. I mean, some of them are the same things that I guess a lot of VCs are looking for. You know, we're looking for a, a really strong founding team, people that have, succeeded in the past people that have uh, been able to do a lot of interesting successful things in the past and generally people that have uh, sort of a lot of expertise in a, in, in a certain area um, 
one of the things we, we really like is people that have you know, huge amounts of d- domain expertise in something. We, we actually often like things that are not purely software. So something where there's either but difficult barriers to entry or another thing that we like is sometimes we get founders coming to us with re- relatively obscure industries that we don't really know much about initially. Um, <laughs> but then we start looking into the industry and, and it turns out that it's, it's enormous and that there are not, you know, tons of, of, of really modern companies operating in that industry. Um, basically we want something where, where we don't think that, you know, four young guys or girls sitting in WeWork with a, can kind of come in and compete with us. It needs to be something uh, a little bit special. And then we also like founders that have kind of done well and just, you know, raising money because uh, it's kind of the first test. It's can they can they sell this idea to, you know, before they start selling it to customers, although we like to see them do that as well early, up, early in the piece, but can they at least sell it to investors? So you mentioned that what you're looking in the founding team is a strong founding team, people that have done many interesting things successfully. How about people that have done many interesting say- things and failed? <laughs> I still think that's a lot better than having not tried. Uh, you learn a huge amount from failure. And it also shows a certain willingness to take risk. So, so for us, it's actually not that important how successful the previous company has been from their perspective i mean obviously we'd like it to be successful uh, everyone would but if they gone out and tried and managed to do something interesting and impressive and learned a lot of lessons along the way that's still really interesting to us one of the things we, we really like are, are value propositions that are sort of relatively simple we see sometimes when someone has to spend 30 minutes explaining to us why something's a good idea <laughs> then we're not quite sure that customers are going to realize why it's a good idea. Or, you know, I think so often the, actually the best <laughs> ideas are like the simplest ones, um, something that you just can imagine yourself really wanting to use if it existed or something that you can imagine is a certain person in this target market, some kind of niche. You just imagine that, yeah, of course, like if this existed, they would definitely use it. So something, again, like a, a relatively simple value proposition Something that's really important for us is, is something that can work at a small scale initially. There's a lot of founders and, and just there's a lot of ideas that work really well. I mean, you, you can imagine these ideas as billion-dollar companies and they would be incredible. They'd be such cool products. Everyone would want to use them. But what, what's harder to imagine uh, with some of these ideas is how the hell could they work with 100, with 100 customers? There's no value for the first customer to sign up there's there's almost no value for the second customer it doesn't work when the company's 10 100 thousand even 10,000 people it only works when the company's really large and for those types of ideas you know how do you get to a really large company if you if you can't go through the the early stages and and, and have a strong value proposition at that stage we see quite a lot of ideas that that work as as large companies but not as small companies and therefore it just makes them really hard to actually, you know, implement and take that idea from nothing to something that's big. I mean, some of the things in our investment platform, in our investment framework, is kind of similar to what VCs are looking at. Some some things are maybe a little bit different. But the one thing that's that really is different from us and a typical VC is that a typical VC often doesn't actually have that much data to work from and that much experience of working with a founder. Whereas we will start working with a founder we might start making small investments in the beginning, but then as we work with the founder, you know, 
you know, really in a really close relationship over months and sometimes years, we start to get to, we get to know that company really well. And we get to know it better as, as we, as we work with them for longer. We, we sort of see how they handle setbacks, how they, how good they are at managing a team, what kind of culture they're building. If they say they're going to do something, how do they follow through with it? So as, as we work with someone, as we work with these companies for longer and longer, we can start writing, you can start making bigger and bigger investments into them and just really feel confident that, that you know, we, we really do understand these companies and, and these founders. So you're not only invested uh, monetarily, but it sounds like you're also kind of like emotionally invested, right? Because you get to like know these people and everything. And at what point, like once the company, let's say we just talk about uh, a success story like Afterpay, but I'm pretty sure that there's also stories that have sad endings. And if you're so invested also emotionally, at what point do you make that decision of like, well, no, actually this probably is not a good moment to keep dropping money in this thing. That has Have you been in that situation before? We haven't actually yet, um, but- Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, look, we 100% will. Uh, it's just a matter of when, but we, but we haven't actually yet. I mean, the, the, the companies that we're involved with, we're, we're never the only investor. Uh, so there would always be opportunity mm -hmm. for, for these companies to raise with their other investors if, if we decided that we no longer wanted to participate. And how do you choose these winners? So you talk about the founding team, and but what if you get like a bunch of them uh, that have that check all the boxes, you know, like they have the right founding team, the idea is interesting. How do you pick? Yeah, I mean, so some of these factors are, you know, kind of mechanical and, and, and quantifiable. And then there is also just an aspect of it that's, I guess, gut feel or intuition. Um, sometimes you just come across, you come across what you just think is the right idea and the right founder. You just can't imagine how this couldn't work. <laughs> you know, there's still a large chance it won't work, <laughs> but it just seems like, this is a really high probability probability bit that, that is worth taking. And I and with all this involvement that you have, um, I'm assuming that there's a, a lot of like legal, tax, and operational compl like complications and different aspects. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, particularly because of the way we're structured. You know, we have a portfolio of multiple companies that we're investing into at the same time. And we have, and those investments are shared across our team. You know, we have a dynamic pool of investments and, a, and, and you know, a dynamic pool of, that represents the team. And we kind of have to manage investments across the two. So it's taken quite a bit of work getting the legal structure set up. There's also tax considerations um, and, and there's various complexities of how do we create a model that that kind of incentivizes the things that we're looking to achieve, but make sure that we don't have any unintended consequences. We don't create any incentives that we, we didn't want. And, and then lastly, there are different ways of structuring these types of investments. And each of the different models actually sits on a different point, sort of on the continuum between, uh, you know, of risk of reward. We will actually use different uh, investment strategies and models to try build a portfolio that kind of uh, has different risk profiles so that we, when we mix it all together, it, we kind of end up at the, at, the, at the overall portfolio risk profile that we're looking for. Um, kind of like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're looking to create 
to see what we can do. What kind of company can we build over the next 40 years? And, and a kind of an, an important part of that is making sure that we, we structure the company in a way where we can you know, withstand unexpected events over the next 40 years and, and not blow ourselves up. So we are super cautious about how we kind of structure and manage risk uh, across our company and our investments. So what are your like favorite lessons that you've learned through this journey? One of the things that I think is really important and actually often kind of underappreciated in our industry is, is just the importance of, sa of, of sales and marketing, especially in startups. The technology is really important. Um, there's no doubt about it. But we see a lot of young companies that are strong in the technology side, but they don't really have, they haven't put as much effort into how they're going to sell this product, how they're going to market it. It's kind of been an afterthought, you know, it's page mm -hmm. seven of the pitch deck. But really, without sales and marketing, you're not going to build the traction that you need. You're not going to get enough customers to get the feedback from them to raise further investment. I mean, it's... I mean, in some ways, it's it'd be annoying. It's kind of annoying. I wish you could just build an awesome product and, and go from there. But but sales and marketing really yeah. is is hugely important. And and I think quite often I would actually pick a founder that has a a really strong domain expertise and is brilliant at selling that expertise, but maybe knows slightly less about technology. I'd often pick that person uh, as an investment over someone that's really strong with technology but is, is much less interested in, in how they're going to create a commercial business out of this or how they're going to sell it, how they're going to market it. Because it kind of affects a lot of the decisions that they make further down the line. It affects how they spend their investment money, what the composition of their team is. And it's just critical when you're, when you're a startup. You're, you're just trying to get to the next stage. So yeah, that, that's something we, we, we look at a lot. And then the, uh, and something else that's, I guess, relatively well known, but just doesn't make it not the most important thing is, is how good our founders at attracting and retaining incredibly bright people. What kind of people do they surround yeah. themselves by and, and, and how good are they at selling the vision and, and bringing in the types of people that they're going to need for them to be successful. If we see clients that, that are really good at, at, at bringing in the right types of co-founders or the right types of technical and commercial and, and, and sales people from, from day one, then, I think it just increases the, the chance of them succeeding hugely. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm here in the Bay Area and I feel that I've been in too many events and uh, like pitch competitions and things like that where uh, monetization is an afterthought, you know, like at this point, like a lot of people just focus so much in user acquisition when a lot of the times what they're building is actually a feature of something else and not actually a product that will be monetized, that people are willing to pay whole car cash, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and especially and it's difficult in the beginning because i mean it's it's harder for startups well it's at least different because often they don't have large marketing budgets they have to be really clever about how they're going to get their first you know 10,000 customers uh, that in itself is a huge challenge for a startup so therefore you really need as mm -hmm. much creative thinking around that area as you do on how do we build a, a product that's better than the, the than their existing competitors in the market or different enough that it has its own unique value proposition. So yeah, we, we really want to see more than just one page in the, in the slide deck for how they can actually grow the company. We, this is something we, <laughs> we care quite a lot about. Yeah, but but I love I love the model of your uh, of dovetail. You know how 
you invest in companies, you help them grow, and you profit share across the company. How does it work when, for example, so so is profit sharing? Uh, it's not profit sharing. They actually own shares in the companies that we work with. Oh, and if they leave your company, they still hold those shares. So they they, uh, they actually own fractional shares, but we have a vesting schedule in Dovetail. So, you know, if they've been here for, for a couple of years, then they will continue to own the share that they build up while they were here for a certain amount of time until ultimately, if some of those companies don't exit in that time frame, uh, then those those shares will be taken back. So basically, we, we want people to oh. have part in the, in the upside of the value that they created while they're at Dovetail and ultimately would love them to stay for the long term. If they leave and and there's still you know, an exit or something within a couple of years, then uh, they have the rights to the upside uh, to the, uh, that comes from that. This is this is really, really, really cool. Which one was your uh, the latest company that you added to the portfolio? Uh, right now, we are building another fintech uh, in Australia. Uh, it's actually called Marmalade. It's, it's helping, helping companies get access to working capital quicker. So a lot of companies uh, are struggling with working capital, especially now because of COVID. But, but actually, it was a huge problem even before where they will make a sale and then often companies, they'll make a sale and they'll have to pay for cost of goods in that sale. But often they won't actually get their money for sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes even 90 days. And that lag between making a sale and actually getting paid just causes a, a huge amount of pain for a lot of companies. So Marmalade is a really exciting uh, new fintech coming out of Australia that uh, we're, involved in, we're involved in building and it's, it's coming in to tackle that problem. And you said that you are now considering expanding into the US, right? Yeah. It's really the next path for Dovetail. We actually have a quite a large client in the US right now. It's another, it's another fintech. You know they haven't even launched their product yet, uh, which we're we're building with them. But they're already valued at over a billion dollars. Very cool. Are you going to be hiring people in the U.S. to help you with your investments? Yes, yeah, certainly. We are to all those listeners that might be interested in applying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would have been more active. Uh, it's a slightly strange time, obviously, as you're aware right now. So it's it's a little bit. We're sort of just taking it month by month and, and seeing how the whole coronavirus thing is rolling out in the US. Um, hopefully things will return more to normal uh, in the next, well, who, who can really predict when that will happen? But we're, we're pausing a little bit until there's a little bit more certainty on, on how that goes. And if you were to give any advice uh, to somebody who's considering this model, what would, what would you do? I would start by going a little bit slow. Um, just ease yourself into it. There's lots of different ways of structuring it. There's different models of structuring these investments and, and your involvement, and they all have different risk levels. Um, some methods are sort of extremely risky, uh, but have a huge amount of upside. Others are, are much safer, but have less upside. It's really important that you kind of get familiar with these different models and, and know how to kind of create a blend of them to, to get the risk profile that you're looking for. Um, and, and it's also just important to, to realize that suddenly your business results become much closer tied to the performance of the companies that you're working with than, say, an agency. So the model really requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of understanding of investments, of investing and investing strategy. And, and I think it requires that you actually have an interest in it. It needs to be a kind of core capability and you need to understand the risks. 
and fully understand your kind of risk profile uh, and have good financial models in place. So I, I would kind of suggest that you, I guess, start small and then get more aggressive as you get more comfortable with what's the right kind of financial and operational structures that you need to, to make this work. Because it's there's more upside in this than the typical model, but there's also more risk. So it's really important that, that you manage those two things correctly. Great. Well, uh, Nick, this was fascinating. I learned a lot and it was so great talking with you. Um, thank you so much for being in this episode. Yeah, great to, great to meet you and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.